Welcome, I'm Pastor Abraham, and I want to thank you for tuning in to Sun Valley Podcast. You can check out our church on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube for worship thoughts, devotionals, and the latest events happening at our church. We hope you are blessed by this week's message. Good morning. Welcome to Sun Valley, where we believe in growing, building, and the hope of awesome, doing better every day. (laughs) Um, We are continuing in our series this week called The Greatest Story, The Unexpected Narrative of Jesus. And this this is our journey through the books of the Bible from Genesis all the way through Revelation. And, and as we go through this, this journey, we're, we're reading some of the major, some of the minor stories, and we're discovering the, the radical and inclusive love of Jesus. And, and this, this portion, for this portion of our journey, we are in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And so today we are uh, in our second of two sermons on Ezra. And just so that you know, um, Ezra and Nehemiah in the Bible are back-to-back, but originally... They were one book. They're not separate books. It was the book of Ezra and Nehemiah together. And so for, for our purposes, for the series, for, for discovering this, uh, the, the stuff behind Ezra and Nehemiah, we are breaking down Ezra and Nehemiah into four different sermons. And so uh, we, we could do far more, but we're, we're just going to cover uh, a couple of key aspects. One, we're covering uh, the first wave of exiles that returned. That's Ezra's chapters 1 through 6. That was last week um, under the leadership of this man named Zerubbabel. Um, second, we are covering wave two. This is Ezra chapter seven through 10. This is this week uh, and under the leadership of Ezra. And then wave three we'll cover sometime in the future, which is the book of Nehemiah, the entire book, um, just kind of what, what that looks like. And then our fourth sermon is going to be an overview and, a, uh, and an exploration of the themology behind these two books and kind of the purpose that they serve uh, for us. And so we are reading today some of the stories from chapters um, seven through 10, and, and we're discovering um, a bunch of different stuff. But last week, as we read chapters 1 through 6, uh, we discovered that, that there is a God who works unexpectedly for his people, and, and a God that turns setbacks into successes. And so we read about this first wave of exiles that return under Zerubbabel and the foundation of the second temple that is built and being built, and kind of about the temple officially being rebuilt, right? That's what we read about last week. And so this week, we are reading about the second wave of Israelites that return uh, under Ezra's guidance and the teachings of, of the law of God. And so Ezra chapter 7 is where we're starting today. Um, we have kind of quite a few verses uh, to get through for our sermon, uh, but we're just going to be jumping around in different places. So if you want to follow along with us with your Bibles, you're welcome to. Uh, we will have the uh, Bible verses available on the screen for you if you want to read there. Uh, that'll be from the New International Version. So Ezra chapter 7 verse 1 says this, after these things, this is after the temple was rebuilt, during the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, son of Sarariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, this is going to be fun, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, the son of Zariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. Why did they include this? <laughs> I'll tell you why. It's just to prove to you that Ezra is a descendant of Aaron, the, the chief priest. That's it. That's all, that's all that verse was. Verse 6. We're going to keep reading. I, I only read that because I like reading the fun stuff. Anyways, verse 6. This Ezra, the son of Aaron, descendant of Aaron, came up from Babylon. He was a teacher well-versed 
in the law of Moses, which the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. The king had granted him everything that he asked for, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Some of the Israelites, including priests, Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, and temple servants, also came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. Ezra arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month of the seventh year of the king. He had begun his journey from Babylon on the first day of the first month, and he arrived in Jerusalem on the first day of the fifth month, for the gracious uh, hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had devoted himself to study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its decrees and laws in Israel. So first off the bat, Ezra, we find out he's a Levite who has devoted himself to learning and teaching the laws that God gave to Moses. This is not just the Big Ten, the Ten Commandments, but also the ceremonial laws, the sacrificial laws, all the laws in between. This is what Ezra has dedicated himself to teaching. So verse 13, chapter 7, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra the priest, teacher of the law of the God of heaven, greetings, he says. Verse 14, you are sent by the king and his seven advisors to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand. Moreover, you are to take with you the silver and the gold uh, that the king and his advisors have freely given to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. Together with all of the silver and gold you may obtain from the province of Babylon, as well as all the freewill offerings of the people and priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. Verse 20. And anything else needed for the temple of your God that you are responsible to supply, you may provide from the royal treasury. Now I, King Artaxerxes, decree that all the treasures of trans-Euphrates are, are, are to provide with diligence, or treasurers of the trans-Euphrates are to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, the teacher of the law of the God of heaven, may ask of you. Verse 24. You are also to know that you have no authority to impose taxes, tribute, or duty on any of the priests. Levites, musicians, gatekeepers, temple servants, or other workers at this house of God. Whoever does not obey the law of your God and the law of the king must surely be punished by death, banishment, confiscation of property, or imprisonment. Praise be to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, who has put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way, and who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials, because the hand of the Lord my God was on me. I take courage, and I gather the leaders from Israel to go up with me. So the king of Persia is, is concerned with the teaching of the law of God among the exiles that have returned to Jerusalem in the first wave. And, and, and he's so concerned, in fact, that he allows a second wave of Israelites to return home under Ezra's leadership with a specific purpose of teaching the people God's law. This isn't about rebuilding the city. This isn't about rebuilding the temple. It's not about any rebuilding. It's about specifically teaching God's law to the second wave or to the first wave of exiles. And the king, again, provides money directly from the royal treasury, provides all of the necessities for sacrifices and festivals, and provides tax exemption for all those who would be directly involved in the working of the teaching of the law and of the work of the temple. Right? And you might have noticed in this chapter that there's a few different times where the chapter makes mention, or the author makes mention, this phrase, God's hand is on Ezra. This was an acknowledgement of God's direct providence in allowing for all of this stuff to take place, the royal treasury stuff, the tax exemptions. And you'll see this idea that's repeated throughout Ezra and Nehemiah. It's this lesson that we learned about last week, that God does the unexpected, and God comes through in miraculous, in miraculous ways. But I want to mention 
Another aspect of God's providence here, something that we're going to see throughout this entire story. And this is where our first lesson comes in. Our first lesson is this. Don't worry about resources. Don't worry about resources. You see, God's hand was over Ezra because Ezra had determined to fulfill the calling that God had placed on his life. Ezra had a special mission and was trusting that God would do his part to make that mission a reality. And sure enough, you read the story, God comes through for Ezra in so many different ways. You see, when God places a purpose in your life, when God gives you a direction, when God gives you a calling, and remember we talked about this, that calling isn't necessarily just a career choice. Calling is whatever God is calling you to do in this moment right now. Calling is whatever God is calling you to do in, 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 tomorrow or today. Those feelings that you get to do something good for someone else, those, those moments of generosity where you think this couldn't be me, this has to be God speaking to me, those things are God's calling for your life. A calling doesn't just have to be whatever your profession will be. A calling, whatever God is moving you to, that's a calling for your life. And so when you are willing to follow this calling, when you are willing to go in God's direction, you don't need to worry about the logistics. You just need to be faithful to what God is calling you to do, and you are going to see God come through in tremendous ways. Now, this doesn't mean that you just sit back and do nothing, and God magically does everything. Wouldn't that be nice? You need to be a part of the work that God is doing, yes. You need to be a part of the work that God is calling you to do. But don't let, and this is the important part, don't let worry about logistics keep you from moving forward. Did you guys hear that? Don't let worry about logistics keep you from moving forward. You need to be a part of the work that God is calling you to do. And it's natural to worry. It is natural to stress out. It is natural to be concerned about uncertainty and risk. I'm not telling you can't have those feelings in your life. A lot of the times what God calls us to will push us and will force us to move outside of our little bubble, our little comfort zone. And while God's call will likely never be worry-free, never be stress-free, we can't let fear of uncertainty paralyze us. We can't let worry keep us from trusting that God will come through. See, when you are working for God's purposes, he promises to take care of the logistics. He says this, he says, when you ask, it will be given to you. When you seek, it will be found. When you knock, the door will be opened for you. See, God will open the storehouses of the kings for you to accomplish your God-given purpose. Don't worry about resources. Don't let worry keep you from moving forward. Trust that God will take care of whatever it is that you need. And so Ezra trusts, and God comes through. And he sets out for Jerusalem, and he gathers all of the people that are to go with them, and they camp out before they set out. And this is Ezra chapter 8. Ezra chapter 8, verse 15 says this, I assembled them at the canal that flows towards Ahava, and we camped there for three days. Jump down to verse 21. There by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask him for a safe journey for us and for our children with all of our possessions. Pause here for a second. Because I, I forgot, I, I didn't notice this when I, was, when I was reading this throughout the week, but I'm noticing this now. 
Ezra and the people that are going back are not just a band of women and children and men. They're vulnerable, but they also have so many riches, gold, treasures, uh, uh, oxen, cattle, everything that they need for sacrifice that the king is sending them. If, if there were any place, if there were a jackpot to hit for bandits, this would be it. This would be it. And he says in verse 22, verse 21, we ask for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. 22. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from the enemies on the road because we had told the king the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him, but his great anger is against all who forsake him. So we fastened, fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. Verse 31. On the twelfth day of the first month, we set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem, the hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from our enemies and bandits along the way. So we arrived in Jerusalem where we rested for three days. See, the road between Persia, the road between Babylon and Jerusalem was not a safe road. There was worry that the people of this band of people would, be, would face bandits and maybe other dangers. People that would come in and, and steal things and, and murder people in order to steal their possessions. And Ezra, he says, is he's afraid. He's afraid to ask for protection from the king because he had boasted or he had expressed this confidence in God that this God of the Israelites, that this Yahweh would divinely protect his people as they head back to Jerusalem. He says, I'm not really that worried because God's hand is over us. And then he faces the reality of the dangers ahead. And he says, oh man, what did I get myself into? And he's afraid to ask for protection. So he gathers the people and he says, let us fast and pray. Let us petition our God for a safe journey because we, we believe that God can do this. So Ezra makes this claim about God. And he doesn't ask for an armed escort because the king might have questioned their faith or might have questioned uh, the, the strength of their faith in their God or whatever the case was. So Ezra has this fast and this pray, and they arrive safely. It says this, because the hand of the Lord was on them. And it's this phrase repeated again in chapter 7 and chapter 8. It's repeated again and again and again because we are trying to understand or the author is trying to help us understand that God does extraordinary things for his people that God is divinely over us, that God's hand is covering us as we go about his business. And even though shame and embarrassment may have caused Ezra not to ask for an armed escort, this moment created the opportunity for God to come through for his people again. That's our second lesson today. Our second lesson is this, let God prove himself. Let God prove himself. We've seen this time and time again throughout all the stories that we've been reading that God is able to do immeasurably more than we ever expect him to do. And not only is God able, physically capable of performing the miracles and wonders, he is also more than willing to do it for his people. Listen to that. Not only is God able to do these things, he is wanting to do these things for you. God wants to do the impossible for you, but you have to be willing to come face to face with impossible odds for God to do the impossible. Are you guys following so far? You have to be willing to come face to face with impossible odds for God to do the impossible. You see, God works in the ordinary and the extraordinary. I believe that. But if all we ever ask of God is for him to do the ordinary, then we cannot complain about never seeing God do the extraordinary. Did you guys hear that? 
when you are willing to step out in faith and ask for the extraordinary, God will respond by working in your life. And let me give you just a little disclaimer. Because it won't always happen the way you expect it to happen. And God might not answer the prayers the way you expect them to be answered. But I trust that God is a good God. And whatever God has in store for you will be much better than whatever you ask for. God works in the ordinary and the extraordinary. See, you can trust God with your finances enough to be faithful to him through your tithes and through your offerings. See, the only reason, and this is just my personal testimony, the only reason that I have seen God come through for me financially is because I have determined to remain faithful. I've had this conversation with God. I've determined to give back my portion or the portion that is his, and he blesses me. Trust God with your future enough to follow wherever God may be calling you. See, back, when was this? Back in 2015, when I interviewed for this position as a youth pastor, remember what we said, how much money did we have? None. <laughs> and we said, we have one year's salary for a youth pastor, and that's it. There was no promise of a second year. But I felt God calling me this way. And how long has it been? Over five Five, something like that. God has been good. God has been good. Too long, yeah. Some some might say. God has been good, right? Yeah, God has been good. Believe that. Because we started off with the potential of only one year. That's it. That's all we have. But God has come through time and time and time and time again. And it's all because of the generosity of you people. You people are being able to give to the church budget. You people are being able to give to this community that is able to support the ministries that we have going on in this church. And I'm amazed every year because I see the reports and I'm wondering, I don't know how we're going to do it. But God comes through. Trust God enough to let go of whatever is keeping you from fulfilling the purpose that God places in your life. And when you trust God, believe me, God proves himself. But you have to create the room for God to prove himself. See, Ezra saw the challenges that he might face. But instead of being discouraged, he and the whole community fasted and prayed that God would protect them on this journey to Jerusalem. He could have determined that it was too dangerous and decided not to go. He could have turned back and asked the king for help, and I'm sure he would have gotten it. But what he does instead is give God the opportunity to show up. So often what happens in our lives is that we see the challenges and the obstacles ahead, and we see all of the reasons that it might not work. We see the risks, and instead of turning to God, we run away. We see the obstacles, we see the roadblocks, we see the potential risks and setbacks, and we let worry discourage us from moving forward into God's call for our lives. But stop seeing your challenges as reasons to turn around, and instead see your challenges as opportunities for God to come through. Did you guys hear that? Stop seeing your challenges as reason to turn around and start seeing your challenges as opportunities for God to come through. Imagine how your life would change if you stopped focusing on how you're going to make it through and started looking at how God is going to pull you through. Don't let worry turn you around. Instead, let it turn you to Jesus. Let God prove himself. You see, Ezra, 
And the second wave of exiles, they finally return to Jerusalem. And, and he encounters a problem with the people who have returned in the first wave to rebuild this temple uh, with, with Zerubbabel. And we're going to read this in Ezra chapter 9. After these things had been done, this is verse 1. Um, after these things had been done, the leaders, they came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices. Verse 2, they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Ezra writes, when I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak pulled my hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. You see, Ezra finds that even the priests who have returned during the first wave have broken God's laws given to Moses by marrying foreign women, by marrying foreign sons and daughters. And so he goes off into prayer, which we're not going to read in its entirety, but, it, but at the end it finishes like this in verse 13, chapter 9. He says, What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our great guilt, and yet our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserved and have still given us a remnant like this. Shall we then break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. You see, Ezra understands that the suffering that they might experience is a consequence of their choices, but he also praises God for the fact that God is far more merciful than they deserve. Ezra chapter 10, verse 1. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping, and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men and women and children, gathered around him. They too wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jael, one of the descendants of Alam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us, but in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God. This is crazy to send away all these women and their children in according with the counsel of my Lord, not the Yahweh, but my Lord Ezra, of those who fear the commands of our God, let it be done according to the law. Verse 4, rise up, this matter is in your hands, we will support you, so take courage and do it. See, some people gather together and they determined that they should force those who had married foreign women and foreign sons to divorce their spouses and send their children away. They thought surely this would appease God because they thought this, if you broke the law, you made it right. And this seemed like the most logical solution for them. So Ezra is encouraged by this zeal, right, this passion for God's law, and they begin to do this. And, not, and we're going to read, not everybody went through with this, uh, there are some who divorced their wives and sent their children away. And this is, this is kind of our final lesson for today. Our final lesson is this. Divorce your spouses and send your children away. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's not. Our final lesson is this. Our final lesson is this. God wants compassion over zealotry. God wants compassion over zealotry. You see, the story plays into this theme of Ezra and Nehemiah. And it's what we're going to talk about in a couple of sermons later. But even though their intention to follow God and God's law was right, the way that they implemented it was not. Because yes, God had given them laws. God had warned his people, don't intermarry with the foreign nations because they'll lead you astray. There are tons of examples in the Bible of that happening. Solomon is a primary example, right? Solomon marries all these different women from foreign nations. Then he begins to follow other gods, leads the whole nation astray. And then there's this whole disaster and catastrophe with not just Solomon, but everybody else's choices, right? But much like any rule, 
there can be exceptions. The line of the Messiah, this Jesus that would come to save the world, included a Canaanite prostitute named Rahab, included a Moabitess named Ruth. Even the line of David had these foreign women. And so God, yes, warned his people about marrying other women. God, yes, instructed his people about teaching their children in the ways of the Lord. But he also instructed his people about caring for their spouses, caring for their children. And so the people were so zealous for God that they abandoned their wives, some of them did, and they left their children to fend for themselves. And in their seal, for, for, for following God's law, they ignored the most important aspect of God's commandments, which is compassion and love. But don't just take my word for it. We're going to read Malachi. Different book, I know. We're skipping. Malachi, right? Chapter 2. Malachi is this prophet that exists during this time period. He actually lives in Jerusalem while all of this is going on. And chapter 2 is directed specifically at these people in this moment. Malachi chapter 2 verse 11 says this, Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign god. He says, yes, you shouldn't have done that. That's what God told you not to do. Verse 15, has not the one God made you? You belong to him in body and spirit. But what does the one God seek? Godly offspring. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. Listen to that. Do not be unfaithful to the wife of your youth. The man who hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord, the God of Israel, does violence to the one he should protect, says the Lord Almighty. So be on your guard and do not be unfaithful. Malachi says, yes, you've done something wrong. Yes, you've screwed up by marrying these foreign women, by introducing these foreign practices, by introducing idolatry. Yes, you've done something wrong, but two wrongs don't make right. That's what Malachi says. He says, be on your guard. Don't be unfaithful. Follow the laws of God. From this point on, don't marry those foreign wives, but... You can't just divorce your wives and send your children away like they're items to be discarded. That's what Malachi says. He says, instead, love them, protect them, care for them. And this is the important part. If your religiosity and your spirituality lead us to oppression and exclusivity, then we have God's priorities all wrong. Do you guys hear that? If our religiosity and our spirituality lead us to oppression and exclusivity, then we have God's priorities all wrong. We cannot let our religious zeal get in the way of the work of compassion and mercy that Jesus calls us to. God wants compassion over zealotry. I'll invite the band to come on up as we begin. You know, it's, it's good to be all in for God. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, there really isn't any other option. You're either all in for God or you're not. But when we're all in, when we're willing to go where God is leading us, we don't have to worry about the resources. That's what the story tells us. God is generous enough and loving enough to provide for us the things that we need to live up to the purpose that he places in our lives. He will open up the floodgates of heaven. That's what God says. He will open up the storehouses of the king, the treasuries of the king. He will pour into your lives if you are willing to trust him and move forward. And as we move forward, know that there will be challenges. Know that there will be risks. Know that there will be obstacles, but they're not indicators to turn around. They're opportunities for God to step in. 
So let God prove himself. Following God will never be stress-free or problem-free. I can't tell you that, that following God will ever be worry-free. It's natural to be worried and, and face uncertainty and face opposition. But the difference between worry in walking alone and worry in walking with God is that when we're walking with God, worry doesn't have to be crippling, right? There may be worry, but God will take care of things. God will come through. When we walk with God, worry doesn't turn us around, it turns us to Jesus. So we see our challenges as opportunities for God to prove himself. Let God prove himself. But as we continue to walk with God, as we grow closer with him, there will inevitably be these things that begin to change in our lives, patterns and, and behaviors and, and, and outlooks. And as we grow in our zeal, as we grow in our passion for God, we have to remember what is so important in the Bible, that God wants compassion over zealotry. Jesus summed up the commandments as this, two things, four words, love God, two words, love God, love people. That's it. Love God, love people. The core idea of Jesus' commandments and how he sums it up is love. The commandments are all about loving God and loving the community around us. If keeping the commandments, or if the way we keep the commandments leads us to hatred and oppression and exclusion, then we have got something seriously wrong. There is nothing wrong with passion for Jesus, passion for his word. There is nothing wrong with trying to be faithful and to live the kind of life that Jesus' followers are called to live. But at the core of our faith needs to be love and compassion. Without love, nothing else matters. Are you a friend to the people around you? Are you loving to the people who are different than you? Are you compassionate to the people who live a life that is different than yours? Exclusivity, listen to this. Exclusivity is not a word that exists in God's kingdom. But love is. The very foundation of God's kingdom is love. Jesus is the God who so loved the world that he would lay down his life that any who would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16, John 3.17 for God came into the world not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. The foundations of Christianity are hope and faith and love. But Paul says the greatest of these is love. Compassion over zealotry. There's no fear in love, but there is a cross.